Welcome to Episode 1, Season 3 of Self-Release Songs. I'm your host, David Garrick. Uh, for starters, I'd like to thank everybody who's listened to Season 1 and 2. Uh, we've shelved those 30 episodes, and we're moving on with 15 new episodes for Season 3. Before we get into um, today's episode and our guest, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about voting. Uh, no matter how you look at it, this election could be the most important election of your lifetime. Uh, the country's divided. There's a lot on the table. But I feel like civility is one thing that we need to get back to. And we cannot be as divided if you're registered to vote and you know where you can vote. Uh, you can check your voter registration status at vote.org. And you can also find out about Uh, voter registration rules, voter registration deadlines, absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, and all other kind of things at vote.org. Remember, you don't get a chance to complain if you don't offer a solution, and voting is a great solution. So, on today's episode, my guest is Amanda Pascali. Depending on what kind of music you listen to, there's a good chance you have no idea who she is. But she's a singer-songwriter here in Houston. And uh, she makes this kind of Baroque folk music. I think she has one of the most interesting sounds I've heard in a long time. And I learned a lot about how she records music, how she writes music, what inspires her uh, from interviewing her from this episode. Uh, She first got on my radar uh, a couple years ago. Uh, with her self-released, I'm sorry, her self-titled debut uh, EP, and then um, with her latest record, Still It Moves, I became more and more intrigued by her sound. I would say it's music of the people. Uh, It has this world kind of vibe to it. And I think what's most interesting about her is Her life is a story. Uh, We find out in this episode that she's inspired by people, which is something that inspires me. What makes it so fascinating is that she self-releases all of her own music. She's traveled the globe. She's a very interesting artist. I do have to apologize about a small rant I go on uh, in this episode. I was going to cut it out, but I ultimately decided to leave it in. Um, it kind of comes up when she brings up using so far sounds and how it's controversial to some people because they only pay artists a hundred dollars and without getting too deep into it, the reason I almost cut it out is because this interview is not about me or my opinions. Uh, it's about her and her opinions, but I also feel like education of the music industry and how it operates is vital to anyone that wants to operate within it. And in the last five years, I've heard more complaints about everything. And I kind of feel like anybody that gets asked to do uh, a So Far Sounds show, if they feel the pay is unfair, they don't have to do it. But to complain about it, I think most artists need to understand, depending on where you are in your career, $100 for a show is not bad. And they do a lot of the legwork for you. And while I'm not, a proponent of their shows, I'm also not against it. And 
part of what I speak to in here is just being educated about how hard it is to book a show, how hard it is to get people out, how hard it is to promote, how little money is on the table for the typical show before you get into the fact that the touring band's agent has to approve whoever plays on the show. And how I've always felt like if you're cool, you just don't even take the money. You appreciate playing in front of the larger audience and you look at it as a learning experience and you let the touring band have the money because they have to make it to another city while you might just have to go uptown a bit. Um, And there's more of that in the episode. But I did want to apologize because while I think it's vital, it's not it's not an interview about me. It's an interview about Amanda Pascali. Um, if you've never heard her music before, I think you should totally check it out. Uh, what I learned on her most current release is that there's no electric instruments on it, and that's amazing to me. We hosted her for the live stream uh, benefit week we did a couple months ago, and I'm just elated to have had her on. She has a very interesting story, uh, a very interesting take. She's in the middle of recording her next record. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here's Amanda Pascali. Where were you born? We'll start there. I was born in um, in Queens, New York, um, but then my family moved to Houston when I was little. So, I mean, was it just like a job thing for them moving here? Or? Yeah, just just a job thing. And like, how did like what kind of upbringing did you have? Like, was was there music in the house? Like, are your parents pretty oh, musical yeah. people? Yeah. Well, my parents aren't very musical people, but um, my dad is a refugee from communist Romania. Okay. And so. When he was living under the communist dictatorship, he used to buy American and British music off of the black market. And so Bob Dylan CDs and Beatles CDs, he would buy off the black market. And then he eventually, that same music, he kind of carried it with him when he came to the United States. And that was the music that I listened to growing up. But there was also a lot of traditional music. My, my family is pretty multicultural. And so a lot of the music that I play now is American folk, but with influences from traditional music from the Mediterranean, Eastern Europe, some Latin influences, just a product of everything that I am. And when you say your family is like multicultural, can you kind of explain that? Like... So my dad is a refugee from communist Romania, as I said, um, with Sicilian heritage, which is how I get my name, Amanda Pascali, and my mom is an Egyptian immigrant by way of France, so French was her first language, but I get my eyebrows from her, this explains how how I look, Um, and I grew up with my grandma, I spent a lot of time with my grandma because my parents, as immigrants, they worked 10 to 12 hours a day, so I saw them mostly on the weekends, but during the weekdays, I spent a lot of time with my grandma who spoke only broken English and Romanian. Wow. And so songs that she would sing to me or stories that she would tell me are very like central to my growing up and my childhood. Sure. I mean, like, 
you say she sang to you, I mean, but nobody really played music in the household. No. I mean, music was played, like, via records or whatever. Right. But, yeah. But no one was, like, a musician. Nope. So where do you think that came from? Well, because I had to spend a lot of time with my grandma growing up, uh, there were a lot of words that I didn't know how to pronounce until I grew up and I became a teenager even because I would listen to the way that she said things like for example she would pronounce the silent e at the end of like the word line and I would think that that's how you say the word line or she would just sound out like every single letter in a word and I would oh that's how you pronounce that but I I fell in love with books and movies and music and that was a kind of my way of realizing, oh, you don't pronounce this word like this, or oh, it's not normal to say, um, put the words in a sentence in this order. And so music was kind of my way of inventing my own language or my own version of English because the singers that I listened to were my English teachers. And that's how I developed my way of speaking and writing and singing. Okay, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, I had a German teacher when I was younger, and she would say vegetables. Yeah. And, or vegetables, you know, and I got, it was confusing, you know, to say the least. So I could see where that would make a mark on somebody. So, like, at what age do you remember kind of first getting into music? Um, I think, well, when I was 12 years old, I had kind of a, a music teacher. I think... Um, I didn't do that many lessons with him, but uh, I remember he was teaching me how to tune the guitar, and I started singing for him. And he, when he heard me sing when I was 12, he was like, oh my god, this is incredible, you're 12 years old, and you can sing like that, we need to make you a YouTube channel. And I was like, I don't know if my mom would like it if I was on YouTube while I'm 12 years old. Yeah. And he's like, no, we need to make a video of you singing and like playing a very simple guitar song. And so the YouTube channel that I have right now was started by him when I was 12 years old. And the first video on my YouTube channel is me saying, Hi, I'm Amanda, I'm 12 years old, and I'm going to sing this song by Green Day. And so it's me singing and playing guitar when I was 12 years old. And at that moment, I was like, I know my, I know my family is immigrants, and I know that they want me to be someone that they can be proud of. And that there are these people very far away that are watching me and my life and expecting me to become successful because I am the product of my parents' sacrifices coming to the United States. And when I picked up a guitar and I started singing and I saw people were impressed by that, I said, this is, the, this is who I was born to be and this is who I'm supposed to be and this is how I'm going to tell the story of my family's diaspora. I mean, is there a pressure in that? I, I would assume there is to a degree, knowing that there are people, when you say, I, I assume when you say people on their side of the world, like other family members and things like that, is there a pressure to that to succeed? I mean... There is a pressure that no amount of words can do justice for me to explain to you. And it's not your fault. Sure. It's not any native-born American's fault. But it's a type of pressure that I can't explain with words. And yeah. I think pretty much every first-generation American kid would agree with me that it's difficult to explain. Yeah. No, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so when does it... Like, do you remember the first things you were into musically? Like, like artists, or was there something you heard that 
made you want to sing or made you want to learn to play guitar? I listened to a lot of punk music. Okay, so like, give me an example. I loved The Runaways. Um, And Joan Jett was one of my first concerts that I ever saw. Um, And I made my own punk band. And so that was the music that I was playing when I was like in my early teens. And the reason why I felt so drawn to that was because my family has always had a history with rebellion. And and we've always had kind of a problem with authority, especially my dad. And so punk music attracted me so much. And then as I got into my late teen years, I discovered more folk music and I discovered like Woody Guthrie, for example. And I was like, this is punk as, this is pretty punk as well. And I realized that you can be just as rebellious with an acoustic guitar as you can be with an electric guitar. And at that point I picked up well, I always had my acoustic guitar, but I started playing it more, and I realized I can take this thing on my back and go traveling across the world and just have my guitar and my voice, and I can still be punk rock. Sure. And that pretty much jump-started like, my career as a singer-songwriter, folk singer-songwriter. No, I, I think that that's the misgiving of a lot of people. This stick with genres, and this can't be this. or they, you know, To me, punk was an attitude. It was... Uh, anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist, inclusive yeah. of everyone that was cool, you know. Um, just like a giant fuck you to any kind of structure, if you will. And But when people would ask me, like, because over the years I've gotten to meet a lot of people, Joe Strummer from The Clash, uh, Mike Watt, Iggy Pop, lots of people. I They say, well, what's the most punk rock thing ever? I'm like, probably when Dylan went electric. Because the world told him you can't do this. And he's like, fuck you, I'm Bob Dylan, I'm gonna do whatever I want. Yeah. You know, and so, but you're right. I mean, Woody Guthrie is a perfect example of somebody that was completely anti-establishment and proved it. I mean, so you're in this punk band, do you remember the name of it? Um, I would rather not say okay. because I think there's still stuff out there on the internet. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. No, there is a thing that if a label's looking at you, they will Google you. So, um, but I mean, that can't be the end of the world kind of thing. There's no. plenty of people that have things they're not proud of out in the ethos. And so, how do you, I mean, you kind of explain it in a way, but how do you transfer from punk to, you're listening to like the Runaways, you're listening to all this punk music, how do you transfer from punk to folk? And was it an immediate transfer? Was there something in between? Was there like an alt-rock band in between or anything I like think, that? I think I still haven't made the transition. No, I know, I think, but from like, playing like traditionally what's called punk music to more like folk music. Yeah, I... Um, I don't know. I think probably... I think probably when I realized that I can't stand playing with the people that I was playing with in a band, I was like, well, I guess I'll just play by myself now. And when I started playing by myself, it was kind of like, there's just an immediate change in sound whenever you're playing with a band as opposed to playing by yourself. Sure. So that already does most of the work for you. And so I think when once I got tired of the other people I was playing with, that was mostly what like started that transition but I hear from a lot of my friends that that play punk music that my songs could easily easily be played as punk songs as well and I sure. think that's because those influences never truly go away and I'm not talking about just the, the meaning and the spirit of my song I'm also talking about 
the sounds. Sure. I think um, some of the melodies and and stuff like that. I think they could they could easily be redone as very melodic yeah. punk songs. No, I, I I think the other day when Eddie Van Halen died, I think I put something up that said I didn't want to be him. I just wanted to play like him. But the struggle for me was how do I sound like Minor Threat but have the ability of Eddie Van Halen, you know? And it's like almost an impossible thing to achieve. I mean, the Minor Threat stuff's easier, but I mean, yeah, what always impressed me about punk and folk both is it's very individualistic, you know? So did you immediately transfer? I mean, you probably still listen to punk music, but what's some of the stuff you like that inspires you? Um, I was a big Operation Ivy fan. Okay. And um, I don't know anything, anything with a message that you can dance to as okay. well, because I think like that's just like the, the golden like combination, and I still aim to achieve that music that has a strong message, but at the same time you want to dance to it. Did you follow all of that, like Tim going from Operation Ivy to Rancid? And owning his own label. I loved, I loved all of it. Yeah. Even like, uh, like all of it. And I, I met Tim's brother actually at nine two four Gilman Street because I was, I was a huge fan. And so I met, I met his brother there, and his brother hooked me up with rancid tickets in Houston with like VIP backstage like access. And so I watched rancid from backstage when they came to Houston like years ago. I think like seven years ago. Yeah, I, on the Liberty and Justice podcast, we talked about Rancid, and uh, I admitted I saw Rancid in 96, I think, when they played Goat's Head Soup, and it burned down at the oh, end of that no. night. Not while the show was going on. Everybody had left already, but it did burn to the ground. Yeah. And it was interesting, because they had said how they'd had all these problems on tour, but they were turning a corner, and then that happened after they left. Wow. So, But that was the Let's Go Tour, and I love that record to this day. I think that's one of the best records ever made. Um, some of the stuff afterward I had trouble getting into but um, so let's kind of roll it back a little bit like is there something that attracted you to guitar or was that like the easiest instrument for you to get like you didn't do piano or anything like that first I guess I learned a little bit of piano when I was little like you usually do but I stopped that and um, at first I wanted to play drums and my dad was like no way like, we have a guitar in the house, though, so you can learn that. And so he allowed me to do that, and so that's what I did. And then after that, I was like, I like piano as well, so I'll try to teach myself how to play piano, and I'm not a pianist at all, but I, I do consider myself as being self-taught a little bit on every single instrument. And on the last um, record that we put out, Still It Moves, I, I played most of the instruments oh, wow. on that on that record, including piano, and I played upright bass as well, and percussion, and harmonica, and balalaika, and like basically anything that I was just like, oh, I want to put this on the song. Let me just teach myself a little bit of this. Yeah, and, and no, the, did it. That's great. I mean, I, see, I didn't know that. Like, I want to kind of get into your sound a little bit. You have a very baroque kind of it's an eclectic sound, but it, it seems to me like it mixes a lot of old world with new world. Can you kind of explain like how you came to that sound? Yeah, I guess I, I love traditional music. I love any music that has a focus on the working people 
and the everyday person. Um, it's especially music that was created by immigrants in America or marginalized people in America. Um, because I think a lot of the music that we love in America and a lot of the music that we're known for here in, in the U.S. around the world has been created by marginalized people and immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, I, I just love traditional music. And it's kind of funny, like, I... I... Um, I'm, I'm kind of, a, what do you call it, a Luddite. I'm kind of a Luddite when it comes to music. And um, on, on our last record, for example, there are no electric instruments whatsoever. Um, it's a 10-song record and there are, there's nothing electric. Everything is acoustic. And so I, I have a hard time um, being able to stand listening to a heavily electronic music. But I could listen to a, tra like, a traditional recording of an aboriginal person playing didgeridoo for like two hours and I'll eat it up. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah, there's a band from the Sahara named Tanari Win and they record in the desert in a van, but it is electron, it is electric instruments and they've got a nice fan base. I know everybody in Krungbin loves that band and they're a band when you go see them. There's not a lot of electric instruments on stage. It's mesmerizing to me and there's other bands from... Um, I am going to butcher the name, Madador Mokhtar, I think. He's on Madador now, but uh, same kind of stuff. Like this very, the way the guitar is played, it tells enough of a story to where you don't have to know what the words are. Right. And it's very telling of that part of the world. It gives you a glimpse into it. It's obviously going to be a little more modern interpretation of it. I mean, when you find, you're obviously not going well I'm only going to listen to artists that fall under this certain right. curtain. Yeah. But that's what you're drawn to. That's what you're basically saying. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, is there a... Was the goal to make the record without electric? No, it, it wasn't the goal. It, it just sort of happened that way. And the way that my vision for the songs kind of... I, I realized, well, what, what do I want on each song? And I would... I would make a list, and, and then at the end I would realize, hey, this record has no electric instruments on it. Yeah. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's more organic that way. I think the biggest problem with modern music is it's so overproduced. Uh, like, I understand why people use a click track. That makes sense. But yeah. anything past that, I'm kind of like, does do you really need the vocals to have treatment on every song, you know? And um, So it's always refreshing to hear something that sounds as you would hear it live. Right. I mean, your live shows sound like the record. I mean, it, that's a testament to how the record was made and your abilities. I mean, do you you travel a lot? You play a lot? I mean, is there... Do you kind of run through everywhere you've played? Oh, geez. Um, that's, that's difficult, I guess. You can go by country if that's best. By country? You know? Well, um, this is... I guess, like, kind of controversial, but I, I, I do a lot of work with so far sounds, um, like global, and so when I've played international, a lot of those shows have been because of so far. Um, and real and, quick, how is that controversial? Are you talking about here in Houston? Uh, a lot of people think, and uh, I guess I'll refrain from giving my opinion on this, but sure. a lot of people think that um, so far doesn't fairly pay the artists sure, because you're essentially doing 
a few hours of work by showing up for sound check and everything, and uh, then you play for about 30 minutes, but it ends up being a whole, the whole job ends up being a few hours for the compensation of $100 per show per artist, which means if you're showing up as a band, it's $100 to split between everybody in right. the band. Um, but then again, they're putting you in front of an audience of entirely new people. You don't have to promote anything. In right. fact, you're encouraged to not promote that you're playing that show. And they will give you, depending on what city and how much money each city has, they will give you a suite of professional photos that were taken by a photographer that was also hired, I'm assuming for also a low amount of money, sure. to photograph you. Um, but just like anything, there's good and there's bad about it. Sure, and if you sell merch at the right, show, I mean, yeah. it makes up for it. There's a, I, I, I think everybody should be paid fairly. I, I not, I've never taken a stand on it. Um, they've asked me to come to shows, and it's always too early in the day for me to make it. So yeah. I've never been to one. Yeah, it's typically early. <laughs> but uh, I kind of look at it like, you know, if you're not. As a guy that's played in basements and played in kitchens and play and slept on floors, to me there's something more admirable about playing a small show where money is not the factor. I used to say you can't really trust anybody if they haven't toured the country in a van and slept on the floor. You know, if you take the time to, you know, the music industry, the way you have success is to build an audience. The only way you can build an audience is to get in front of different people. And whatever the opportunity is, it's not like you're going to do that forever anyway. Yeah. So I kind of feel like it's a good way to start the tour. And at some point, you know, hopefully you get an agent and all that changes. Mm. But until that happens, there's certain markets where I think that's a great way to play. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I think the misconception... I don't know how everybody in the world feels about so far. All the shit talking I ever heard came out of Houston, so I'll just lay this out there. And if people don't like this, it's not my problem. But most people in Houston don't know how the music industry operates. I hear complaints about everything. This guy puts the same bands on every show, not realizing that the agent that is booking the band that's touring has to approve the band. So if you've had something that's always been approved, probably what you're going to go with and you have other factors for that whether it be that band will promote it they don't care about money everything's going to be easy those are all factors in it and i hear people complain about all the time and until you understand there are factors as to why these things happen it has nothing to do with your band it has nothing to do with unfairness but life isn't fair you know life is not fair i mean i thought that i would be playing pro baseball obviously that didn't happen you know it doesn't mean that you shut down and you give up. If anything, it should ignite a fire to do better, you know? I mean, there's bands right now that say it's impossible to tour, and the photographer I was talking about before we started, Derek Rathbun, has gone to Europe. He's toured all over the U.S., and before COVID, they were supposed to go to Korea, and he booked it all by himself. No agent, just booked it on his own. Mm. So there's a way to do it, but until you understand how the industry works or what it takes to book a show, you can't really talk smack about it. So the way I feel about so far is, is it unfair? Probably, but most shows are unfair. In a perfect world, yeah. you know, the bands would get all of the money, but that's not how it works. So you either work to change that, or you deal with it, and you know, you decide what you'll use and what you won't. You know, um, I think it's great if you've gotten shows yeah. in other 
I guess in other countries or yes yeah I they have helped me a lot and especially um, the work that the team at so far Houston is doing I think they're really they they are doing a lot for the Houston music community sure. yeah and again like I don't know enough about it but from what I to understand I'm kind of like yeah but you could also go play at a big giant venue and be told to be happy with your free drink tickets you know yeah, yeah. so I mean the reality of it is is that there's a bit of unfairness. You know, the, I'll, I'll extend on it even more. There are bands that are opening a concert with a touring act and a support act that want more money than the touring act or the supporting act. And it's because they don't understand the economics of it. You know, a lot of concerts have door deals. So that means there's no guarantee for the band. And you want to open the band and you want to open the show and you want $400, you insane? Give $400 on a headlining show, but the way I always felt was you open for that band, you let them keep the money because you might have to go to Katy, but they have to go to another city, you yeah. know? So it's because people don't understand it. And until there's education in every city about how the industry works and how little money there is sometimes, hopefully it helps educate people as to what is actually fair and what isn't. Yeah. So moving past that, sorry to get on my soapbox. It's okay. But it's, it's very upsetting to me because I know how hard it is to book a concert. I know how hard it is to get people to show up, especially in this market. There's a reason it's called a B market here because you, stuff that sells out everywhere doesn't sell out here. And that's before we get to the fact that attendees act like jerks at a concert or something like that. They're loud or they're talkative or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's always disheartening to me when someone claims unfairness and they don't understand that one of the bands are opening for is getting less money than they're getting. So I think a hundred bucks is fair at that level. So anyway, like country wise, where have you played? Um, I've played in Italy. I've played in Romania. Um, and yeah, in, in, we, we had an entire tour booked, um, European tour and partial US tour booked pre-COVID that all got cancelled and there were dates in Paris, Berlin, Nuremberg, um, Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands, and uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, and that all didn't happen. And those were markets you, some of those were markets you played, some of those you weren't, you've never played or you've never played any of them? I've, I've never played in France, I've never played in Germany, never played in the Netherlands, and I've never even been to Bulgaria before, so yeah. And how had you arranged travel? Was it just... Do you have like somebody driving you or? Oh, from show to show? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm pretty used to traveling within Europe. Um, and so I guess in, in much of Western Europe, you can take the train, sure. especially in uh, Germany and the Netherlands and France. Um, once you start getting to like Romania and Eastern Europe, that's less of a thing. Sure. So, um, that would be usually like cheap flights and this is mostly a thing in Europe is like these really cheap airlines that sure. you pay like you can pay like $30 and you can get a flight to another country right oh, no, I, I, I understand how all that works I mean I think it's it's hilarious that we don't have rapid transit in this country yeah. I mean like I don't know how many times I went from Nice to Paris for no money and I got to put my bike on the, you know, I got to bring my bike on the rail. And yeah. I, I, like, literally no emissions. And 
got to travel for no money. It was like four dollars, basically, you know. Or in Italy, you can use the. I mean, all throughout Rome, you can use the subway for like fifty cents a day. Yeah. You know, uh, their their national rail is a little pricey, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But also depends on where you're going, things like that. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, and I you. Am I right? You took a boat at one point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was working on a ship um, do, uh, operating machinery for mapping the seafloor off the coast of Namibia. Um, so in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. Um, I went to Namibia by myself. Um, and we arrived in this uh, small town near the sea. It's called Waldus Bay. And um, when we got there... The plane was, I guess it's one of those like cheap things where they don't even bring you to the actual like gate. They just like drop you in the middle and you have to get out on one of those um, like stair thingies. And it was in the middle of the desert because Namibia is this fantastic place where the desert meets the sea. They're the tallest sand dunes in the world and they're right next to the ocean. Um, So the plane just arrived there in the desert and you got off the stairs and you had to walk through the desert for like five minutes before you got to the actual airport and when when you got in the airport was like so small and there was no floor it was just dirt oh wow like you just got in there and it was just dirt and um the driver that was supposed to be picking me up um my my professor who recruited me for part of this for to be part of this trip he sent a driver to come pick me up but I still had to pay for for the ride and I didn't have any Namibian money and so the guy was telling me go to the ATM and go get money and I was like okay so I went to this ATM and it was in the middle of the desert and the ATM wasn't working and I told him the ATM is not working so I don't have any Namibian money and he was like oh the ATM doesn't work because it's Sunday obviously the ATM isn't gonna work and so I'm just like stranded in the desert with no with no Namibian money and I was like well I have American money and my you know I'm always told in the US if you have American money you can go anywhere everyone will take American money except Switzerland yeah no but it's not true in many places actually I know know it's not (laughs) evidently Switzerland so and so um, I just there's this quote by an Italian poet his name is Cesare Pavese and he said traveling is a brutality because it forces you to trust strangers and so I was just in the car with this driver and I was like I have only American money and he's like it's okay I'll take you to my friend and he can trade you American money for Namibian money at the same rate like I'll take you to his market and we can trade it and he did he took me to this small market and I went inside and I said here's like 20 American dollars and at the exact same rate he gave me an, you know the appropriate amount of Namibian money and I got to pay the driver but that's cool it's one of those things where it's like you're in a small town and there's a community there so the people are relatively trustworthy but sure. you have to just rely on you know sometimes there may be language barriers and you just have to rely sure. on the, the good in other people and um, the value of eye contact and smiling and other things that transcend sure. language. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's an adventurous spirit to want to take a trip like that. And that, it's funny that you brought up a quote from a poet because I would say both those are factors in your music. It's very, 
adventurous kind of, this is what I want to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And then to tour Europe and go to places that you, even though the tour didn't happen, but to go places you've never been. And then this whole poetic nature. I mean, do you find that, that it kind of all ties together in what you do? Yeah. I'm just inspired by everyday things. And people will ask me during COVID or during quarantine if I'm writing a lot. And I have to be honest with them and tell them no, because the things that inspired me pre-COVID are not things that can happen right now. I can't meet everyday people because I don't meet anyone. I don't go outside, you know? And it's like, those are the things that inspire me. Like that driver in Namibia inspired me. My relatives that live in the countryside of Romania and milk cows, they inspire me. My cousins inspire me. My uncle that has a university degree, but still he is an immigrant in the UK and he drives trucks for a living, even though he's way overqualified and his hope and spirit to keep going even though he's underappreciated that inspires me yeah no i agree with that being in india and seeing the caste system and being told i got to cut in front of 10 people in line because i'm white basically and i was like no i'm not gonna do that and they're like no you have to and so i'm like because i took a rail and they had little guards and they're like they'll be offended if you don't and these people understand how things are so I was getting soup, or I was going to get soup, and then I was like, oh, right, don't drink water. So I got a sandwich, and then I bought everybody behind me soup. And everybody was like, the whole time I'm just trying to eat. I mean, I'm like walking through this town, and I've just got random strangers like holding up a cup and thanking me. And, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I don't want to cut in front of them if I can't get them something to eat, you know? And it's India. The money is almost useless. So it's like, you know, I mean, it wasn't like it was like expensive or anything like that. It was just, that's what I could do. Because their whole way of thinking is foreign to me, you know? Yeah. Like, I, And there's been other things, like helping children in the wintertime in the train station in uh, Russia. You know, like, the, I, I'm with you. Like, everyday people are what inspire me, you know? Like, if I can help somebody to make their day or their week or their month or their life better, you know, and it's nothing to me, it's probably everything to them. So, I understand that a lot. Um... I mean, if you had to describe your sound, what would you describe it as? Um, well, there's actually a, a writer for, I, I believe it's Houston Press. Uh, her name's Gladys Fuentes. Yeah, I know Gladys. She's great. She described my music as an auditory passport. And I think that that is the most accurate description of, of my music that there is. I mean, do you find that, like, it is... Like, I think you have a universal sound, but do you find that it's more accepted or less accepted when you're, like, booking a concert or something like that? What do you mean by that? Well, like, you know, nowadays everything gets put into a genre, and in some ways I would say, well, this is folk music, but in other ways I would say it's even, it might be closer to world music, and so... Has it caused any issue for you? Like, I would assume it hasn't, but maybe it has. I don't know. The world's screwed up. I, so. I think I'm, I'm sure that it has, but uh, if it has, it's not like the person told me straight to my face. So they sure. probably talked shit about me behind my back and then just ignored me, sure. which is how... I mean, you get ignored all the time in music, but yeah. uh, do I know why that is all the time? Maybe because they think that, you know, I'm... I don't know. <laughs> All, all the possible reasons why you could ignore me, I think. 
I don't know if it's if it's caused problems with people, then I don't know about it. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, you've gotten lots of press. I mean, like I when we did the live stream, I didn't even I don't know anybody at City Book. I don't know where that came from. Like I literally was like, oh, cool. I, I had no idea. You know, <laughs> like there were people we reached out to, but it, and I to my understanding, Mario didn't set that up. So. And I was like, wow, they put her, you know, on the front of it and everything, you know. And I mean, I, I think that makes sense in a lot of ways. But it was just like, oh, that's cool. Had they written about you before? Or? They wrote about me right before. So they, they wrote about me in March. Or we did the photo shoot in March and they interviewed me then. And then it took forever for the issue to come out because of COVID. Sure. Uh, but then it came out in the summer. And then shortly after that, you reached out to me about doing the benefit live stream. You know, and... For me, I chose to reach out to you because I'm a fan. When I, you know, it's whatever, whatever I'm doing, whether it be writing articles or obviously I'm not doing the radio show at Rice because I'm not going to go on a college campus because they're like bacteria zones right now. But you know, they are having shows at Rice. I'm just not doing one because I and I'm around my parents a lot and they're old and I don't want to infect them. Uh, but. I, when I'm, I'm you, you decide like what you're gonna play, and for me it's a play, I do a playlist like I like pick stuff way early and make the playlist. Sometimes as stuff's playing, I'm picking what's gonna come next. Mm-hmm. If I were gonna do run right now, it'd take me a long time to get to Houston artists because there's been so much great Texas music. A record came out today, Loma. It's a it's a beautiful record, and Emily Cross, who's also in a band called Cross Record, is in that project, and. You know, stuff like that. There's been a lot of other things. But typically, it's like, oh, I like this. You know, to me, is it good? Is the first thing that comes out of my mouth. If a PR rep sends me something, I'm like, well, is it good? You know, and if it's good, that's all the marker I need. And I've found that most people, when they call a radio station or they engage with an article, they're always like, what is this? How do I not know about it? You know, and that's why I asked if you'd maybe encountered anything, you know, to where... Maybe people weren't, they did, they'd never heard of you or something like that. How long have you been playing music like you play now? I think since I was about 17 or 18 is really when I started, um, I guess, like branding myself as a singer-songwriter. And I mean, you just said you haven't been really writing in COVID, but I mean, I would assume you had some songs ready for what's next already like set aside yes and do you know what that looks like do you know yeah so we're actually i'm glad you asked that we're trying to we're trying to record those songs right now um and so i i started a patreon page which i really like because there are people that are listeners and they're pretty loyal and and they're almost like friends to me and now i get to reward them for supporting me with like exclusive content that I know that they will enjoy and that I enjoy making um, and in you know in doing that they're supporting or funding our recordings for possibly to release as singles or an EP it's, it's kind of unstructured right sure. now um, but yeah we're it's patreon.com slash Amanda Pascali okay we'll, we'll link it in the description thank you so is there and how do you go about recording? Do you self-record or do you go in with an engineer? Or? No, uh, we're working with a really, really cool guy named Calvin. Um, and he has a little studio uh, that is not commercial, 
but uh, we go in and, and, and we record. The, the foundation is really my guitar and vocals with um, Addison's violin, cello, and mandolin, and uh, my friend James Kesley Richardson's upright bass. So that, that is the foundation of our sound. And then we add other stuff on that, like drums and other stuff. But that's interesting because most, a lot of times bands when they record, it's bass and drums first, then guitars, then vocals. Right. So it's interesting to hear someone say, well, I focus yeah. on these instruments first. I mean, has it always been that way? Yeah, or it's this- always kind of been that way because um, my music is me and I am someone that quite literally like jumps on planes and ships with a guitar on my back and that's how the music starts so that's how I start writing it at first and it can always be scaled down to that no matter where I am like right. I'm o- it's always me with my guitar and so having that as the foundation as the first thing like the bass like tracks that we record is is I guess it's kind of unique but that that's how well, no it's smart style. because I always wonder when I listen to records like oh this is great how do you do this live you know, like I mean, especially when I know that there's only three people in the band, you know, yeah. or whatever. Um, so, you have this Patreon winner. Do you have a rough idea of what? I mean, you said it's unstructured right now, but yeah. uh, what it looks like for a release? So, like sometime during 2021, I think the funding is the biggest barrier for us right now. Sure. Um, and I see a lot of my musician friends doing Kickstarter, and it might, it might result in us starting one of those but as of right now I'm yeah we're trying to we're trying to just get it off the ground right now and then take it one step at a time well the Patreon is great because it does there's a there's a group on YouTube I don't like the music they listen to but they start on Patreon and they have a million subscribers on YouTube and for what they do it's like a chat show about metal and I don't, I don't hate metal, but I, I don't gauge with it nearly as much as I do other things. And I'm like, wow, I guess, you know, it works if you can make it work. And yeah, the offer to offer exclusive content as people are funding a project, I think that's a great thing. I, I feel like if you're going to do a Kickstarter, it makes more sense to do an Indiegogo because you get to keep whatever you raise, whereas you do a Kickstarter and you don't meet your goal, you don't get anything. Yeah. yeah. So, and I get that that's part of the excitement but it's also to me I'm always like oh guaranteed money is always better so um, so you say sometime next year and then I guess you'll try to reschedule the tour or have you already started that? I'm trying I'm, I'm trying but it's difficult to even get people to answer their emails sure. right now um, yeah and, and in Europe you never know how because they're treating coronavirus differently over there and sure I they're think, actually taking it seriously as opposed to our country that's mad because right, they have to wear a mask yeah. right but I do think that every place has its flaws it, Italy for example um, they're starting to shut down a few more things now um, and I find it funny that it's coming after they had their summer summer is a big deal for Italians especially it August so around August 15th everybody flocks to the beaches no social distancing whatsoever and so I find it funny that after August they started shutting things down again which is like it's better than what we're doing about it here but at the same time it's like oh how convenient you had your summer and now you're going back on shutdown okay no I mean I've been to Italy 13 times and what I would tell anybody is if you want to go and you don't want to be around chaos go in October but culturally they're very 
hug, speak. Yeah. You never meet a stranger in Italy. Everyone's super jovial and nice. But I don't know how you break people of that either, you know? Like, I, yeah, I, I, I saw that as well, and I thought it was comical that they, after the the good season, it was like, okay, well, I guess we got to get back down to lockdown, yeah. and, you know? Um, and each country is different in how they right. culturally embrace this. So, yeah, no, I, I think the hardest part right now is figuring out who has their job. You yeah. know, like the person you used to email might not even be doing booking anymore. Right, yeah. You know, so, yeah, I would think there's a learning curve to all of that. Well, that's cool. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you, Davis. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Self-Release Songs is produced by David Garrick and Closed Captioned. You can stream new episodes every Thursday on the Closed Captioned website at closedcap.com. You can also stream new episodes on all streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or you can support us at Anchor. Thanks for listening.